you wanna be in the know About how we put together our little shows If you like to hear the puppeteers And play the characters that you cheer So join us as we go, go, go Below the frame on this episode of Below the Frame, I'm talking with Sesame Street Muppet performer Warwick Brownlow Pike. Warwick plays Gonger on Sesame Street, and he was in Dark Crystal, The Age of Resistance. So much to talk about. We also hear from a friend of Jerry Nelson and get another Jerry story and song. So make sure your passport's in order. It's time to go Below the Frame. Go, go, go Below the Frame. Welcome to Below the Frame. I am Matt Vogel, and... You know, I just want to say, take a second here just to say how lucky I am. I am so lucky to get to talk to the people on this podcast who who bring to life the characters that we all hold close to our hearts. And and I'm so lucky to call them friends. And and I'm so lucky to be able to bring this podcast to you. Uh, I I hope you're enjoying the stories that you're hearing. And I I find every one of them fascinating and inspiring. I really do. And I hope you do as well. And today... I'm Below the Frame. We are talking with a friend of mine who lives in the UK. He's only ever wanted to do things with puppets his whole life. And he's so driven and focused and full of love for this job. And, and I think you're going to hear that in the, in the interview today. He plays Gonger on Sesame Street in the segment of the show with Cookie Monster called Monster Foodies. And it's a segment that he actually he helped create. He also was a part of the cast of The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, which is on Netflix and is just stunningly beautiful and exciting to watch. So, uh, oh, uh, an audio note. A little while into the interview, we discovered that our mic setup wasn't optimal. Uh, We fixed it, but it's a little rocky at first, and then my audio kind of goes in and out toward the end of the interview. So, please bear with us. We're we're just doing the best we can here. Uh, Okay, so with that out of the way, I am ready. Are you ready? Wonderful. Then let's go below the frame with Warwick Brownlow Pike. Thank you for being here on Below the Frame. Thanks for having me. I love yeah. that. See, you're, you're in uh, the UK right now. I'm in London, England, and I'm surrounded by duvets so that I don't have an echo. I wanna, we haven't really had like an extended conversation about, no. you know, this will all be about you. One okay. day we can reverse <laughs> the story. That being said, I would like to know, where did you grow up? So I grew up in London, England. And my family have been in London forever, since Oliver Twist days. What Um, part of London? In East London. So literally like the the parts you'd see in in Oliver Twist, (laughs) where the poor people live. (laughs) I mean, not now, but that's what it was like when my parents were growing up. And and, uh, well, tell me about your family. So I grew up up at home with my mum and dad. My sisters, I have two sisters who are 16 and 18 years older than me, and they were practically, uh, they had left home by that point. Yeah. Mostly, nearly. You're the baby. I was the baby, yeah. They decided that uh, it was like, should we shop, shop? No, let's have one more. (laughs) (laughs) They got you. They got me, yeah. (laughs) Poor people. What did your parents do? My dad was in construction. We call Mm -hmm. them builders. Builders, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he was a plasterer, so not in the arts at all, really. Um, and like, didn't really show any interest in the arts, uh, but always supported me. Oh, that's nice. Which I thought was that's quite cool. weird, because it's not his scene at all. But he, he always supported me and seemed like he just had faith in me, really, which was nice. 
because you would yes. expect that kind of parent from that that um of that age he was a lot older than my mum mm-hmm. he was like 12 years older than my mum so he was kind of an old guy and came from a background where you just had to get out and work yeah yeah <laughs> you didn't have to like nobody's going to give you anything and those, they were really poor like i said they were really poor when they were kids extremely poor so i was quite so i am quite surprised that he just let me find my way and try to yeah, and supported you and supported me yeah um my mum uh, is very creative always has been she she was an upholsterer like a seamstress Mm -hmm. so she would always make things so and like she still says now that i always think that she can do anything i'm like mom we need to uh make this uh can you make it for me (laughs) she's like you think i can do anything but she can basically do anything like she can make anything and and when i was seven or eight i'd come to her and say i want to make a puppet like i want it to look like kermit so this is and somehow i knew how to make patterns so I knew where the darts would go in the head. Of a, I must have seen it in the books, on the documentaries or something. It was just in yeah. my brain. It was just information that easily went in. And so I'd draw out these patterns, and then she'd sew them all together, and they'd turn out really good. <laughs> and this was when you were seven? Like seven or eight, yeah. Well, you know, I just want to go. Your mom, yeah. you said your mom was super creative. Mm. That's probably where your dad saw in you this creativity like yeah. your mom's. And she, they had puppets around. They had marionettes. My mom oh. had marionettes around just because she liked them. Did she have aspirations to be a performer? No, not at all. No. no. She was a, mostly a full-time mum for most mm. of her life. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she's still around now, but yeah. she's not anymore. She's a grandma. And I'm, I'm wondering, what kind of things did you do as a kid? Um, I were, well, like, I was always obsessed with puppets. So that was always in my mind. Yeah. Um, so I'd be like, I'm an artist, so I'd be drawing characters, always with a, with a thought that that would be a great puppet. Um, I'd always be drawing and kind of making stuff up. I was constantly coming up with TV show ideas ever since I was really small. <laughs> I have, I have like notebooks full of this character does this and this guy does this and this is where they live. And yeah. So I, was, I really spent all of my time doing that kind of stuff in my bedroom, listening to records and doing that kind of thing. What kind of records were you listening to? Muppet show records, um, musicals, stuff that my sisters had left. <laughs> yeah. So things that were really feeding your imagination and inspiring you to create yeah, your own things. Yeah, and it was, and it wasn't really stuff that I'd bought. So, which, and I, so had I bought stuff, it'd have been in the eighties. It was all stuff yeah. in the seventies that was kind of left over from right. my parents and my sisters. So I always enjoyed the sound of that kind of stuff. So you were a fan of the Muppet Show. Did you see the Muppet Show? Yeah, I saw the Muppet Show when it was in repeats on BBC One when I was like two. It started in repeats in nineteen eighty six. I was born in eighty five. Mm-hmm. So that's how quick. <laughs> I suppose like the story I tell is that one day my mum was busy, so she put me in front of the TV and the Muppets was on. <laughs> and then right. I was just hooked. I was instantly hooked. And it became like a ritual. I had, I had this like little recliner, baby-sized recliner, and I'd sit in the recliner and just watch the Muppet show. And my mum would make sure I was there every time it came on because I loved it so much. And w- what was it about the Muppet show that you loved? I, I, I can't really put my finger on it because what I, love, what I loved about it growing up is that they're all kind of weird and kind of outcasts, which I yeah. often felt like I was one of those people. So yeah. I kind of I fit in with those guys. But as a tiny kid, I suppose it was the colors, the sounds. It's like it just hits all the senses, doesn't it? Yeah, it really like does. Great for every sense. Yeah, it really <laughs> is. there's music. Oh, there's music. It's funny. Yeah, it's wild. Did you have Sesame Street in London? 
Yes, we had Sesame Street, but it was later on. So I discovered the Muppet Show first. And as you've said, you know, you were so interested in into puppets mm. as a little kid. So you're building puppets. Yep. You're making them. Your mom's helping you. Yep. Yeah. First, I was kind of designing them, I suppose, for a long time, and trying to make them out of whatever we had around. But then soon realized, no, they need to be better than this. They need to look good. So we did yeah. fleece and stuff. We somehow I found out about all that kind of stuff, and like I knew that we needed foam. So. I mean, they got pretty good pretty quickly because my mom was so good at, at what she did. Right. I, I mean, I wouldn't sew. She'd teach me to sew. I can sew, but lazy. I'd ask her to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's always better to have mom do it anyway. Well, I always knew that it would be, uh, like I knew that if I did it, it would be a bit shonky. And I wanted yeah. it to look as good as they did on the TV. Of course. Of course. <laughs> and when, when she was making stuff for her, her actual job, I'd be able to go to these places and see the rolls of fur and the rolls of fleece and the different textures mm-hmm. And then I'd see those my mum doing that stuff. So that was already in my brain. Like I just knew that that was possible. I, yeah. Like you know, we, we, you want this kind of texture? We can go and find that kind of texture. That's so great that she was so supportive like that. And they like she'd always take me. They both would always take me to puppet exhibitions or you know shows or whatever was around. They'd always drive for miles. Did you have any uh, experiences with Muppets or Sesame Street out in the real world? Oh yeah, yeah. So the Museum of Moving Image in London, which is now closed, which was on the South Bank, in around 89, 90, they had a Muppet exhibition there. So we went to that and lost my mind. That was the first time I saw a Muppet, I suppose. Yeah, because you're seeing it in in, in real, real life. life. And I saw the babies from Muppets Take Manhattan. And oh I my thought, gosh. Wow, they're so big. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a great illusion in the yeah. movie because they do feel small and yeah. baby-like. I just love looking at them. So good. And that was also really cool because a lot of that exhibition, half of it was dedicated to the creature shop because the creature shop was mm. here, just around the yeah. corner. Um, so they, I suppose they were like, well, it's here, just bring everything out. And they had a creature shop desk and you could mess with things and play with the stuff. And they had Skeksis in there and the labyrinth creatures. They had tons. What a great experience for you. I mean, you were four or five years old at that yeah. time. So were you aware of who Jim Henson was? Yeah, yeah. Again, I don't know how. Maybe that's where I found out. Because um, I don't know if I'd seen a documentary by that point when I was that young. Or even if I had books. If I had books and stuff, they were probably storybooks as opposed to behind-the-scenes books. So yeah. somehow I found out. Um, I remember, I rem- like I was only five, but I remember when Jim died. And they it was do. all over the news and stuff. Uh, and I also remember the news of the, the creature shop, which was in Hampstead, opposite his house, uh, closed down and moved to Camden. And the, the news reports at the time were that the fumes were too much for the locals. <laughs> I remember thinking, oh, how dare they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They're creating things. Yeah. Uh, but as a kid, I mean, I can't imagine you, would, you could understand truly what it meant that Jim was gone, right? No. No. It was, it was just kind of like... too young. It was, yeah, it's kind of too young. But I knew, I knew it was a big deal. Mm. Um. And then I thought that would be the end of the Muppets, I suppose. Uh, thank God it wasn't. So you're growing up, you're building your own puppets. Did you have aspirations to perform those puppets and create characters? Yes. Is this all rolling into you drawing things and yep. creating these TV shows in your mm-hmm. mind? Yeah. And so what do you do? You're going to school. Yeah. You, you are, are you entertaining kids at school no. with puppets? No. God, no. <laughs> because why? Because, because I would have been bullied, I suppose. Yeah. And it's not the cool thing to do. I was the only person, in fact, like I, I didn't know anybody that knew anything about puppets. 
or was interested in the slightest. The, the, the first time that people around me in school knew about puppets was Muppet Christmas Carol. And they'd call them all by their character names in the movie. So I'd roll my eyes and go, oh, it's Link. not Marley and Marley, it's Tatler and Warhol. <laughs> <laughs> so that was just yeah. an annoyance to me. But yeah, nobody, nobody around me really knew. They, they knew that I liked them, but I don't know if they knew that I was making them. My closest friends did because I try and make little short films and I'd always rope them into being the actors. What kind of short films would you make? <laughs> God knows. Somebody's just walk, like little... somebody walking over there and a puppet calls them yeah. <laughs> and says, hello. Yeah. <laughs> there was no script. It was all just yeah. like, record. okay, so you press record and then you walk over there and I'll interrupt you. And <laughs> Just creative playing as a kid yeah. and putting it on film. Yeah. So another thing is my mom's really technical. She, like I said, I think she can do anything. <laughs> wow. So she, she got a hold of a video camera really early on and, and just like recorded me doing my puppets and like showing off, look at my Muppet stuff and all that kind of stuff. And then she would hook it up to the TV for me so that I could start learning the trade, mm. you know, like just practice from, from such an early age. Were you aware that that's how, and, or your mom was aware that that was how they... Yeah. How I, Muppet performers worked I, I, by using uh, a monitor? Yeah, by that time, when I was like, say, seven or eight or nine, uh-huh. we must have seen something that told us that's what they were doing. And wow, she would so. just like hook stuff up. I don't know. She just like knew. <laughs> oh, I'm just going to plug that into there and that into there and that will work. And yeah. there you go. So yeah, Practice. I have hours and hours of me just like, so I'd lay flat on my back in the living room, flat on my back, put a yeah. record on. Mostly it would be Dana Ross records. <laughs> like, <laughs> So you might know this because you have to press play on the record player and you have to jump down and get into position before the track starts. Yep. That's right. <laughs> you always kill yourself. And, yeah. then, and the frame was like so low, like inches off the floor. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, yeah. lip sync and I'd lip sync and lip sync to everything. And as a kid there trying to perform to this monitor, it's all backwards. It's not like, or, or did you feel like you picked it up pretty that. quickly? Yeah, I, just, I, just, I suppose it was, it was what it was. I didn't know any other way. Right. So, and, and like, probably at that point, uh, as far as I was concerned, I'd achieved. I was, yeah. I was doing it. You're doing <laughs> I it. Doing it. I, I was watching it. I loved what I was seeing. I loved what I was hearing because it was good music. Yeah. And uh, yeah, like I jumped a massive hurdle. Yeah. So all through school, you're going to school, yeah. not really letting anybody know you're not performing <laughs> in public. Yeah, you're just no. kind of keeping it to yourself. Leavering away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you thinking this is what I want to do with my life? Yeah. I, I, I was always, my thoughts were always that I'm creating shows in my notebooks, creating characters, creating scenarios and, and concepts. And then, and that's what will happen. <laughs> One of these shows will get made. That's now what will I happen. Know, but that, that's like blind faith. That's what will happen. Along the way, I did do a birthday. Like, so I, I was never the kind of person who would do birthday parties because I was way too shy to do any of that kind of thing. Extremely, extremely shy. Painfully shy. And, uh, and I did get roped into doing a birthday party for one of my sister's friend's kids. And my mum and dad bought me a Punch and Judy booth for Christmas one year, which is ridiculous because we live in an apartment, a small apartment. <laughs> like it nearly <laughs> touched the ceiling. Oh my gosh. Um, and so they brought I was it. thinking, you know, those like three foot high, really small... Nope. They had it. They had one made. Oh my goodness! Full size curtains, painted up everything, and uh, and so I we took that to this person's garden, and I was going to do a puppet show again, like no script. I'm just going to ad lib the whole thing, sing a couple of songs, yeah, <laughs> sing a couple of Dana Ross songs for the show. No, we'll be out in and out. <laughs> just like yeah, hollowed out a couple of the fraggle dolls that I had. Um, <laughs> yeah, 
so we get in there, and then all these kids just run riot. They're like they're back in the booth with me. They're grabbing the puppets. It was horrendous, horrific. I will never ever do a birthday party again. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to professional puppetry. Puppetry. There's a first and last time I did that. That was it. Yeah, yeah, it was not what you had anticipated it being. Not for me, no. I can't. No. I didn't. I, I just wasn't in control at all. And the parents kind of, I think, often I think, and I feel for entertainers who do this kind of stuff, but often I think that the parents think that they're the babysitter. Yeah, they do. And they're not the babysitter. They're they're the it really should be kind of like the security guards that yeah. are keeping the kids <laughs> yeah. seated so the performer can do yeah. their job. There was not one child sat. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, so I didn't, what do you it. I didn't get through it. You did? <laughs> I just, <laughs> I just abandoned that. Uh, uh, it, but now you have this stage. Did you do anything else with the stage? No. No. Oh, man. <laughs> Scarred. Scarred my life. <laughs> Burn it. Put it on the bonfire. Yeah. <laughs> no. So as you're getting older, you're growing up, you're going to school and you're thinking, this is what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And you. You finish school. What are you thinking? What's your next plan? Yeah, so I went through what we call primary school, which is when you know you're young, junior school, and then mm-hmm. secondary school, and then I didn't go to college or university. My plan was to get a job, and the job, a job, any job, and that would support my needs. So, like, I need to buy materials to make puppets, you know. So, and that was my only thoughts. I, I had no ideas of higher education, and now I wish I'd have pursued acting. Um, I just didn't even think about it. I just like, I was just like, okay, I need money. They they can't keep paying for all the stuff I need. I need money now because I need to buy my supplies to make my stuff to make yeah. my. Child. So it was out of necessity. And, and and also like I needed it immediately. I couldn't wait. It had been too long. Like even though I was beavering, it had been too long. It has to happen now. We need to do it now. I need to. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've done this since you were two years old. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> you so really need to get. Done. It's about time to yeah. get to making this show or whatever you want to do. I'm gonna one of these ideas. So I'm gonna take it to somebody. Yeah, and, and then that's gonna happen. That show's gonna happen. So yeah. <laughs> so what kind of what kind of job did you get? Um, I got lots of different jobs. You know, painting, decorating, some awful jobs. Painting um, what? What were you painting? Insides of apartments, houses. You know, you like, just, so people, just any manual labor job you could do yep, just to get uh, out and make money. People would move out and then you'd have to make the apartment nice again for the next people. Uh, one of those jobs entailed us clearing out an apartment that was full of dead animals. Oh. Been left in shoot. So it was a, a brother and sister who were in their 80s and they'd either died or moved out. And there was basically a lifetime's worth of pets in shoeboxes under beds on top of wardrobes we pulled a wardrobe away from the wall and there was so much cat poo on top that it stayed like a shelf a solid shelf so we were shoveling shit um, <laughs> yeah you were uh which i'm really grateful for because i mean i rarely complain when we're at work now <laughs> <laughs> you're right you're not I a know, complainer i know how hard it can be <laughs> yeah it's and i know yeah. that it's only a couple of steps away from going back there uh, yeah. always so so you did like any it. kind of job. You did any kind of job you could to, to make money. To make money. Well, I mean, not and help, anything. Right, right, <laughs> right. Of course not. Even you had that far. Then, when did things change for you? When did you luck out? Like I said, I was trying to create these shows that were my shows in my head, my characters. Um, it never really occurred to me that you need to audition for someone. Like you work for someone else. It just didn't. I suppose from reading about Jim and stuff, I just thought, well, this, this is the way we do it. <laughs> this is where yeah. other people do this. We come with our own stuff, and 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 that's what makes. Um, so 
then when I was like maybe 20 or something, I thought, oh, I should Google puppeteer auditions. And I did. And I found one. And I got a gig. <laughs> at that, just like that? Yep. And I've been there ever since. The end. Great podcast. Bye, Matt. Thanks, Matt. All right. Once you Googled puppeteer auditions, that, crazy? that was it. You were in. Yeah, I, there was a there was a job application for an assistant. Well, I think it was for, just for puppeteers for a CBBS show, which is the preschool BBC channel. Um, and I applied. I didn't get the job as one of the lead puppeteers. I had no experience. I'd, I was great on a monitor. I had all that monitor experience, but I couldn't create characters. I wasn't confident with voices and you know all that kind of thing. I didn't like my acting was nil acting skills were nil then. So I was new. I was brand new, but yeah. kind of had the manipulation down. We sang a couple of songs in the audition. We did some scripts and stuff and they were like, some Diana yeah. Ross, some <laughs> Diana Ross. <laughs> my records. Uh, and, and they were like, great. Yeah. Nice. one." It's very Muppety. So I was like, cha-ching. Great. Thank you. Yeah. I'm done. <laughs> and, uh, but that was the critique. They didn't want it Muppety. Oh. Were, I don't know what they want something else. What does that mean uh, exactly? I don't know. I have to ask him. But I got the job as an assistant to Sarah Burgess, who did Phoebe on the Furchester Hotel mm-hmm. years, years and years later. Uh, so I spent like the next the summer, we did 30 pop songs, covers of 30 pop songs. And so I was like piano playing Rat Hands for that summer. What oh, was the show? It was called Space Pirates. It only lasted for one season. So... I was assisting the lead singer of the three-piece rap band at Rap Called Brassy. And we had like lots of, we had, we had Jackson 5 numbers and stuff like that. So you'd have the Jackson 5 dance routines, like, you know, the hand spinning and all that stuff. Oh my I, gosh. I hadn't really considered it. Like I hadn't considered being an assistant even. <laughs> it hadn't entered my mind <laughs> because yeah. I was going out there to do my own thing. Um, so yeah, I, th- that's when it kind of, I was like, oh, this is tricky stuff. I had to learn how to do all, all that kind of assisting. So I'm just jumping in here in the middle of the interview to let you know that this is the point when we discovered that there was an audio mishap. Uh, but we're going to pick it up right from here. Um, just pretend that, uh, you know, it never even bothered you. No, it's fine. It, there, no one's going to notice. I'll be able to EQ this. <laughs> so, it's perfect. No one will know that we now have your microphone properly. Yeah, I paid all this money for a microphone and didn't turn it on. Great. <laughs> <laughs> but it works now. And can you hear me? You sound wonderful. Oh, fantastic. So we didn't get very far into it, only about 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's good. Yeah. We'll just pick it up right where we were. Great. Uh, so we were talking about Space Pirates, but now I've been looking at your CV. Uh, now, res- in, resume. Yes, in America, we call that a resume. Yeah. But do you know what CV means? I did. I it's like it's curriculum, Latin. V- it's Latin. V- 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 vitae? Vitae. Curricula vitae? Mm. Yeah, curriculum vitae. No, I don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> it's, it's just a resume. It's yeah. just, and you have a ton of shows on there. I like to call and, it a list. <laughs> Would you like to see my list? <laughs> yeah, you have a, I've got a list of shows that I've been a part of. I'm going to name some of those shows and just tell me a little bit yeah. about them, okay? Okay, cool. So we talked about Space Pirates. You were an assist mm-hmm. on that show. Then there was yeah. a show called Carrie and David's Pop Show. Which really I only f- covered for Neil Sterenberg for three episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was just doing Live Hands, which is great because I didn't, hadn't done Live Hands yet. So I did a couple of episodes of Live Hands. Nothing to write home about. But, um, well, then why is it on your CV? I don't know. It needs to be on the list. <laughs> it needs to be on the list. No, you're right. Pain. 
You're right. Uh, then, then Ed and Aucho. Yeah, which is where it takes off, really. Yeah, because so, you play Aucho. Yeah, and and the story goes back like 16 years because one of the puppeteers on Space Pirates was Dave Chapman, who is BBA and was in the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance with us. Um, I mean, he does everything. So Dave was the... I want to try and tell this story and not make it confusing. Dave was a puppet character on the CBBC channel, which is the BBC Children's channel. And they did the bits between the shows, kind of the interstitial bits between each show. You know, coming up next is this, send in your post, blah, blah, blah. So they had a send in when I was watching, I was like 10. Uh, and they said, what are you obsessed with? Send, send us in your obsessions and we'll talk about them. So I sent in a, saying, I'm obsessed with puppets. And Dave called me back. Dave was there for like five or six years as Otis the Aardvark. And he, he said he had never called a kid back. I mean, you don't call kids back when you work at a TV station. He called me back and he was like, hi, I'm Dave. I do Otis the Aardvark. So I was like, oh my God, a real puppet, a real life puppeteer. Yeah. Talking British. Because really, they, all the puppeteers were American. It was the Muppet puppeteers, all those guys who I knew, and I didn't really think there were many British puppeteers around at that point. So Dave called me back and gave me a massive boost because now, like, oh, there's a there's a, a British puppeteer that Something I know, to aspire I kind to of now. know, yeah. And he's doing yeah. great work. He has a great character that's I think Karen Prill made the puppet, um, kind of Muppet like, but not really. He's doing his own thing. He's definitely like the character is definitely uh, his own thing. It's not a copy of anything we've seen before. Um, so when I get the job at Space Pirates, I come in and Dave says, Warwick Brown Pike. How could I forget your name? <laughs> 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 Which is a really lovely story. And then so we worked together on Space Pirates. And then those guys said, Dave, we're going to have the puppet between the shows again. Would you like to come back and do it? And he said, no, but I think Warwick should go and do it. So I went in and auditioned for those guys. And that's how I got that job as Oucho the Cactus. And can you tell me a little bit about that character? And He's a, he's, uh, he's a cactus. He lives in a pot plant on a desk in an office. It's cantankerous because he can't get around. He can't walk anywhere. He can't take himself anywhere. He can't reach anything. Uh, uh, he doesn't have hands. He doesn't have any hands. His, his arms are up in the air. He, just, he, j- he can speak though. Yep. But he doesn't speak English. What? He speaks oh, really? Cactinian, which only Ed, the presenter, the co-presenter understands. Uh, which started out as a gobbledygook language, but then we did it for like three years and words would stick. So, so the audience would start to pick up on those words. And, mm-hmm. and we had such a, a great um, two-way going between Ed and I that he wouldn't translate what Oucho would say. He would just, you know, he'd say things like, um, well, he'd answer the question or he'd say, you can't say that and leave it up to the audience to decide what he had said. <laughs> we had a really good thing going there. The writers were, everybody was great. Everybody on that team was great, uh, which meant it worked really well. And we got three series out of it. So, so that was, we were doing that as the pieces between the shows. Yeah. And this and was that, live um, every afternoon, right? So we went live straight away. Yeah. But the, how day do one, you, we were live on TV. Uh, and you've done a lot of this and we'll talk about it another, you know, mm-hmm. kind of what with, with Dodge here in a second, but mm-hmm. you do it live every day. We did every, half an hour a day live, yeah. How do you do that? I mean, is it, is it written material every day? Is there it's, a little yeah. bit of a mismatch of, of written it's, and so We had like a, every day, we do, we do what we like to call a sitcom because there'd be a story that starts on the Monday. You know, Outcho would, um, he fancies that he might want to get married this week. 
so that he, so on Monday he gets the is mm, you know I'm thinking I should, probably by now I should get married and then we have a whole half an hour broken up into pieces of that story like the guy saying you're a cactus you can't get married it's like no I'm thinking I'm gonna look for someone get a dating app and all that kind of thing and then it progresses on Tuesday there would be a guest character comedy guest character who would you'd be a potential wife maybe or something like that or a priest or you know a, um, a stylist who's going to dress him for the wedding. And that, that would be a comedy actor or a puppeteer who, who we've, we've all worked with, lots of the puppeteers we all work with in England. I'd kind of call those guys up and get them in as a way to get to know them and because I was a fan of their work, because I hadn't met anybody yet, really. I was still new to the scene. So I'd, like, you know, I'd look up the best people or the people whose work I admired right. and get them to come in. And they'd do guest cacti characters who then I'd translate this English script into Cactinian for them. Um, on the Wednesday, there'd be a debate and we'd debate with the audience. So this is when it became unscripted. We'd, we'd debate on a Wednesday, what's best, marriage or sausages? And the audience would have to, a random debate. They'd email in and we'd read out their arguments to and for, uh, to, for and against. Uh, and then the story would wrap up on the Friday. It would all fall apart on the Friday. You know, he wants a divorce. He's not even married yet, but he wants a divorce. And that was literally one of the storylines. He got pregnant one week, like, we did, some, we did some crazy stuff. <laughs> Nobody, they just loved it and no one was really paying any real attention. <laughs> so we were just kind of left up to our own devices. Oh my goodness. And you did three series. So how, that's three we years three worth? Year, we did three years of that. And then we did three series, spin-off series. Oh my gosh. One was a Saturday morning show, a live show, like a two hour Saturday morning show. So that's on BBC two, which is the big time. <laughs> that's the big time. It's like, you know, Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah. And we're the, so it's the same as what we've been doing in the week, but the chunks are bigger. The live segments are like now 10 minutes as opposed to three. And they're split over the morning. And the other show and, was a pre-recorded location-based sitcom-y science show. Yeah. Wow. So you got a lot of hours on camera. You're doing a character, yeah. and I see a little bit of a, a pattern here of characters that maybe don't speak. I know, uh, and I don't English. know why. I don't know why that keeps happening to me. Yeah, maybe we'll talk about that. I'm here not in eloquent a enough. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> oh, well, he, he looks like he's doing good stuff, but what is he saying? <laughs> I can't understand him. Yeah, <laughs> uh, let's talk about mongrels. Oh yeah, well, that's a great show. That was a great show. We did two series of mongrels for BBC Three, which is the adult BBC channel. Uh, you know, like the um, university crowd channel. And that was a high-end show. All the money was on screen. We had these beautiful race sets. We had like a pub, an old East End pub and cars. And they're all raised up. Everything was really high up and, and just beautiful design. And puppets made by Andy Heath and Yestin Evans, which were lovely puppets. And that was all, they had basically recorded the show as a radio play. And then we lip-synced to the track. And who was doing the voices? Comedians, British comedians. I see. Yeah. And by this time, did you now, were you in this circle of, of performers? Did I you know so, a lot yeah. of them? Well, so Andy had come in to be a guest cactus. He was, a, he was the stylist, cactus wedding planner. Mm -hmm. So on that day, he, and I loved Andy's work from before that. And uh, so that's why I got him in. On the day, he was like, oh, look at this. This is when phones were brand new and they had screen video on your phone <laughs> was brand new. Like, yeah. This. And he showed me the pilot and it just blew me away. Then he gave me the DVD. I went home and watched it four times in a row and thought, God, I just need to be on this. And luckily, uh, they had a character come up that they needed cut to, to be cast for the series. So I got to be the... Nelson the Fox was the lead and I got to be his best friend. 
which was that's pretty, pretty it's fantastic. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, and also I, I thought so. My worry going into that was, God, how am I going to learn all these lines? Um, because it's serious now. It's not live television. <laughs> it's like <laughs> although although some people might think the opposite. I think that's the opposite. I think yeah. it could be the opposite because doing something live. I mean, there's no takebacks. You're it's live. Right. Yeah, but I was just really comfortable with it. That's all I'd known really. Because that's kind of what I was doing when I was a kid, messing around. It's just, it's the just, same, to me, it was the same, like, just somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, just <laughs> sitting on the floor with your arm up in the air. Yeah. Let's do Inches from the floor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just that this time someone brings me tea. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Uh, it's always nice when they bring yeah. you tea. <laughs> so, so I was like, oh God, I'm, I won't remember these lines. Uh, you know, the acting, Jesus, how am I going to get through this? So it came as a relief to know that the, all the audio had been done. It was kind of, it like eased me into that way of working. And were you able to to tape your lines up to the monitor? Or yeah, 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 yeah. But you kind of didn't need to because we had the track and we you just learn the rhythms and, and the cadence mm -hmm. and intonation. You just it's like learning, learning a song, I suppose. Yeah, it is almost like a little choreographed song. Yeah. How long were the chunks of uh, material that you'd record? Not very long. So just little chunks they Snippets, put them Yeah, like minutes, maybe. That's good. Yeah. yeah. Was it a single camera shoot? It was there were two cameras. There were two moving cameras, actually. Um, because I know it was exciting when you guys did that on the ABC series. And I already knew that I already knew that what you were gonna come up against. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're having to watch both both, both shots. And actually yeah. I was the only um straight scanner on the show. Everybody else worked reverse scan. Yeah, so we should talk just briefly about that. In the UK, a lot of performers, mm -hmm. they flop their monitors so that they are looking flop. at a mirrored image, right? Flip. Flip. Well, you can <laughs> flip or flop. It's either way. You can yeah. flip, flip, flop. <laughs> they flip. Sorry, maybe in America we say flop. Yeah. I don't know. We, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they, but they, they're looking at a mirror, a mirrored yeah. image, and mm -hmm. that is... Uh, something that they do really in in the UK. We yeah, I don't, don't know why. do it over here in the US. I don't know, and I don't know where it came from. I, you know, because when Jim and the guys were doing the Muppet Show, certainly they were looking at just yep. true scan monitors, mm -hmm. direct yeah. scan. But somewhere along was, the way, somebody thought we're going to do it this way. Going to turn it around. Yeah, I was working straight scan because that's what it looked like when we plugged it into the TV. Yep, that's all you knew. <laughs> I had no ways of doing messing with it. So that's true. So you were the only. Uh, on that show, I was the direct scan. scan. So, how did you designate a monitor? Did they designate well, a monitor for you? Or luckily, I spent lots of my time inside a trash can, a ah. dustbin. Yes, if you dustbin. will. <laughs> uh, so I was away from everybody, and I could. But there were often times when we would all be out there doing musical numbers, dance routines, oh boy. hard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, and I'd be the only one, and they'd catch mine, or I'd catch theirs, and it would all go to. Oh man! But then some days. This is interesting. I'd come in in the morning and all the monitors would be set out and they'd all be on reverse because they were always putting everything on reverse because the majority were on reverse. So uh, the camera guys would put the monitors on reverse and then I wouldn't clock that it was reversed. So that I just would do it. And then at lunchtime, I'd come in and go, okay, got to switch that. And then it would completely throw me to switch. Your, your brain you know, had been doing it. Yeah, I suppose like I came in in the morning and my brain was tired and it just saw what it saw and accepted it. Yeah, but then as I got as I woke up and, and realized to switch, <laughs> it, then that's when it would all fall apart, which is weird. Yeah, it is weird. 
but but it happens. I mean, sometimes I'll I'll not be on a monitor for a long time, mm-hmm. and I'll flip on a camera and put a puppet up, and I'm like, oh, some something feels weird. <laughs> yeah. Am I looking at a mirror, or am I look <laughs> like I always have to? It takes me a second, especially when we're shooting things at home and or on a uh, phone. Yeah, and I do have programs that will allow the 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 image to be you know a true scan, mm-hmm. but. Every once in a while, I look at it and I'm like, "Wait a second! Wait a second! Yeah. No, no, it's right. It's <laughs> it takes me a little while." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're coming back with Warwick Brownlow Pike in a bit, but first, it's time for a story written by Jerry Nelson. Today, I've asked a good friend of Jerry's, Bill Evol, an artist and a musician. He plays the bass, and he he played music with Jerry up on Cape Cod and spent a lot of time with him there. And I've asked Bill to share his memory and read a Jerry story. So here he is. Bill? It was Dick Solberg, the Sun Mountain Fiddler, who introduced me to Jerry Nelson back in the late 70s. Jerry was sitting in with the fiddler who played at the old meeting house across from my first art gallery in Provincetown, and they stopped in to say hey. Now, I'm a full-time artist, and I was just getting into a new style of color woodcuts. Jerry focused right in, and we became lifelong friends ever after. Later, He wanted to know all about this woodcut thing, and he wanted to try his hand at it. I was happy to show him how, and he produced some pretty competent work. Musical artist and visual artist. Now, for my part, I was a hack guitarist who would just sit in on the after-hours jams where the fiddler and Jerry would give me tips on playing. They both encouraged my musical side. The fiddler was full of classical musical knowledge, a stern old-school professional maestro, not above applying corporal punishment to a particular egregious error. Jerry, on the other hand, was gentle and understated, but firm. He rarely made criticisms, but when he did, they were quite quiet and emphatic. Most of the time, though, we just played for the fun of it. Once when the fiddler was on the road, he left his string bass at my house for safekeeping. He told me the first lesson in playing string bass was to have one. So here, now he showed me the proper way to hold the instrument. Then he said, just pick it up every once in a while and hold it. Oh, and by the way, the four strings are the same tuning as the first four strings on a guitar. That was my first bass lesson. Well, Jerry moved to Truro and would come over to my house maybe four or five days a week and play. He didn't mind me trying to learn bass along with his uber-professional performing, and he always gave me encouragement. With my woodcuts, I have a series of images of musicians of all kinds, classical, rock and roll, jazz, etc. In the early 80s, I decided to add a bluegrass band and sketched out a mandolin player, a fiddler, and a guitarist. My images were never about stars or personalities, but in sketching the fiddle player, it always came out looking like Dick Solberg. So I decided to go with it, and then I made the guitar player look like Jerry. I struggled with the mandolin player and finally opted to put in a bass player instead and make him look like me. A great inside joke, I thought. Everybody loved it, and when the fiddlers saw it, they laughed and said, that's the Sun Mountain Band in 2000. I thought, cool. And then I realized that was almost 20 years away. Well, through the next several years, I kept up with the string bass. My friend Ted DiColo, a virtuoso reed and flute man and music teacher at a school near Boston, heard about my interest in the bass. 
He rescued a discarded student base from the dumpster at his school and gave it to me. That really got me going. Then my friend and real pro bassist Ed Sheridan hooked me up with a professional grade bass and showed me a lot of important stuff. Meanwhile, Jerry and I continued playing together in my living room or at his house and with other musician friends whenever we could. I started to get it. The classic moment for me was at a late night jam with a group of five or six players. I was playing okay, keeping up my own, when after a long set, the other guys took a break, but not Jerry. Sensing that I was on the verge of a musical breakthrough, he kept playing. He moved right in front of me and started playing a particularly energetic version of Rounder's Blues at a very quick tempo. I think he was daring me to keep up and show the boys what I could do. Well, hang on, guys, here we go. Jerry wailed away and I kept up breathlessly. He played so hard and so long that his strumming fingers were bleeding all over his guitar. But we did it. I think Jerry was trying to prove that all the time he put into helping me learn was not for naught. The fiddler was impressed, and he asked Jerry, What happened to Billy? Did aliens come down and inhabit his body? I came in 15 years early for my SMB 2000 deadline. The story that I'm about to read is one of many I heard Jerry tell over the years. I never knew he actually wrote some of them down, but I'm glad he did. 1959, The Village Coffee Shop by Jerry Nelson. Back in 1959, when The Village Coffee Shop was still in existence at Sheridan Square, some friends and I stopped in for an early morning snack after a late party at Dave Barrett's apartment on Barrow Street. Most of the people were from Paul or Barbara's Richards acting classes, but there were some other interesting people there too. One fellow I talked with said he wanted to be a folk singer-songwriter. I asked his name and was told it was Tom Paxton. I bumped into Tom in a few other places over the years, and you would have to say he achieved his goal. That, however, has nothing to do with this story. There were about four or five of us from the party at the coffee shop. While we were there having our early breakfast, this guy comes in and sits across the bay from us. He was really whacked on something, which became more and more apparent. He ordered coffee. Then he got up and went over to the jukebox. After fumbling around for a quarter, he dropped it in the coin slot and was transfixed by the sound of the coin hitting all the clunks, shoops, and chings in its journey from the slot to the coin box somewhere in the bowels of the machine. He was so taken by the sound it made that he pushed the coin return in order to make it happen again, and then again, each time getting more into the rhythm of the sound with body movement. He did this five times in all. Now, we as a class steeped in method acting are all totally focused on this character in this coffee shop play. Oblivious to the rest of the world, our star finally made a selection of a bluesy jazz piece. He returned to the counter, sat down, picked up his spoon, and started measuring sugar into his now-cooled coffee until the cup was overflowing into the saucer. He then began stirring and stirring and stirring, stirring for at least a full minute. We are all transfixed while he stares at his coffee until the tune on the jukebox ends. Then he picks up and drains the cup in one long quaff. He then puts down some money, gets up, turns up the collar of his overcoat, and walks out. 
We thought he was pretty high on something, but then again, he may have been an early performance artist trying out some new material. Whatever it was, I've never forgotten it, and it always brings a smile to my face when I think of it. Thanks, Bill. In a bit, we'll hear a song from Jerry. We're back with Warwick Brownlow Pike. So he did two series of mongrels. Mm. And so all, all, when we were doing that show and the Ed and Outcho shows, I'd always still keep that job, that, what, which we call presentation, the job of being live between the shows. I'd always keep that job. So I'd leave for a bit and go and make a series and then come back to that. Like I'd finish on the Friday, start a series on the Monday, you know, finish six months later and go back on the Monday. <laughs> oh my gosh. So it was no just a continuous thing. No break, which I loved. Like that's exactly what I wanted. To always be working. For. It's, it's yeah. your job. Yeah. And, and also it's not just a job. It's my, the way of life. It's all I could ever do. I, there's nothing else I want to do or could ever do. So it just like as much as you can possibly throw at me. <laughs> These days I get tired. Yeah. But, um, but like, and it's still actually the same, really. It's, I still have that job. Um, th- 13 years or so down the line, 13 years plus. So yeah, I've been lucky. I'll do one more and then we're going to talk about Dodge here. Uh, what about Get Well Soon? At some point we made Get Well Soon, which is a, a preschool medical show. And it has a real life NHS doctor called Dr. Range. It's his idea, the show's his idea. And these kids, we have five puppet kids who come in <laughs> over like 50 odd episodes. And each time they come in, they're ill. They have something wrong with them. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> these poor children. So like they have a broken arm or yeah. they've got the, and the uh, cough or I don't know. They have all these things wrong with them. It's a really great show and a valuable show for parents because we cover so many ailments and illnesses. And, and like my daughter had to get, have an injection and she had seen the injection episode and I just couldn't believe the effect it had. She was so calm and she was like, okay, I'm just going to have this thing stuck into me. It's done. It's fine. Whereas when I was a kid, I would have like just screamed bloody murder. Yeah. I I have, I'll have to show that episode to my oldest son, Jack, because he does not like shots. Yeah, See, this show prepares them for it, and that's it great. Works, and we've had such good feedback uh, from that show. It deals with really serious uh, illnesses, and, and uh, so it's it's not just for the kids who might see it to help prepare them, but also you, you're kind of intimating it's for the parents as well. I suppose so. Yeah, I, I think it's the, mostly it's for the kid to see someone else going through what they're about to go through. Right. And, you know, don't be scared of the big uh, MRI scanner. Yeah, because, like, you right. see Joby go through. Joby's my character. You see him go in there and he has his scan and he gets to see the cool imagery. So it's a really good tool. I'm really proud of that show. And, like, it's probably the show we've spent the least amount of time on. We did, like, a couple of days on it for a couple of years and knocked them all out. But it's a really good one. So in 2010, according to your CV, mm-hmm. you debuted as Dodge the Dog. Yeah. So actually, Dodge, Dodge and Outcho, they have the same job. Outcho came to an end. We did the series. It kind of ran its course. What, ha- what happened is the bosses changed. The boss of the channel changed. So they want to bring their new thing in, which of course. often happens. But to do I the same with, thing. But to do the same thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah same job. It's exactly the same. It's just... Presenter. You're yeah, presenting. Don't, we don't look at that anymore. We want to look at this. So <laughs> puppets changed. So I went from a cactus to a dog. Yep. And Dodge has a brother, Hacker, who had come in just before Dodge to cover me whilst I was away making the show. Making a show. Mm-hmm. So whilst I was away making one of the shows, 
Phil Fletcher came in with Hack of the Dog to cover me. And then that was a hit and the boss changed and they were like, we like this. Let's do that. Let's do more of that. <laughs> so we're going to make another dog that's pretty similar to that dog. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so that was fantastic because then I get to speak English. Yeah. For, for once. <laughs> yeah, that's, is this the first, well, it's not the first time. Not the first, but like the first character where you but, get a good chance at developing it. and you do Yeah, it day, day after day. Mm-hmm. And it was live, it, he was live on the CBBC channel for like eight years and then moved to the CBBC house, which is pre-record and for the younger audience. Um, and like, I've been doing it for 10 years now, which was also another dream of mine to, to have a character that just exists in the world. People know him. He has memories with people, you know. Yeah. I just love They've got these real lives. When you have these characters, much like the Muppet characters or the Sesame Street characters, yep. because they are iconic and, and people know them and they can see them, they can hug them, they can really be face-to-face with them. Definitely, they have yeah. these real histories, these actual lives. Yeah. You can call him up and he'll answer the phone. Yeah. Or you can call me up and I'll pass the phone. <laughs> and he will talk to you. And he'll talk to you. What happened last week? Uh, and I love it. And, you know, he's recognized and... Yeah, I just, I love that. He has relationships with people that I don't have. I might be under a table when a celebrity comes in and right. I might not get up from under that table because there's no time. You just got to get on with it. So he has yeah. had a whole like couple of hours of banter and they've become friends. And I could walk past that person in the street and they wouldn't know who I am. They would not know who you are. Yeah. <laughs> but they will never forget the talking dog. <laughs> yep. <laughs> they never do. They never forget. And it is funny to see how adults buy into these characters that we create almost instantly right sometimes i find it fun when they don't because it's the challenge yeah because then mostly people do buy into it straight away and just and just like hit the ground running and and they just want as much as they could possibly get as much interaction and time with this thing as they can possibly have that's right uh so i quite enjoy it when you come up against someone and they give you the side eye (laughs) and, and like scrunch their face up because then I'm like, okay, let's see if we, let's see what we can I, do. Can I get, yeah. <laughs> can I get in? What a sense of accomplishment when you do. And you're like, yes. got you. Now you believe. You are talking to the yeah. dog. <laughs> so you were saying that this was a, a live afternoon, morning, and weekend it show? Was, it was just all over the place, yeah. And then <laughs> you're doing that now, right? It's the same job I have now, yeah. And is that still live? No, so but since he moved to pre- BB's house, which was like three or four years ago, it became pre-records. And okay. it's basically the closest thing we have in England to Sesame Street. Okay. It's like, imagine Sesame Street broken up into a couple of minute chunks mm-hmm. that spread throughout the day. It's basically right. that. We do the same kind of educational stuff and songs and, you know, uh, storylines, character storylines. And how often are you working versus not working on that show? Um, well, kind of like every day when I'm not doing something else. Uh, during lockdown, I was doing three days a week from home and we like we closed on the Thursday and we, we were back working from home from the Tuesday. And we did that the whole time. And then we did lots of specials from home, like you guys did with Sesame. Mm-hmm. We did lots of specials from home, guest appearances on other people's shows because not everybody was set up. <laughs> they were scrambling for guests. Not I'll bet, yeah. To work. And luckily, because of the nature of the way we work, our brains just know like it's easy to set up shooting from home. You performed for and met the queen (laughs) in the summer of 2012. Yep. So we, we used to work at BBC television center, which is an iconic studio in London um, where all of the best television, British television was made. 
big variety shows and comedy shows and all that. That was all made there. There's so much history in that building. They sold the building and we moved to Manchester. The studio moved to Manchester. So the Queen came to open the studio. And I mean, God knows why, but they decided she was going to come into our studio. <laughs> there are lots of interesting things happening in that building. And they brought her in to see us. So the dogs, <laughs> and we were like so blasé about it. It's fine, it's fine. She's like one of our grandmas coming in, it's fine. And then we heard her shoes coming down the corridor. And they, you know, like, and we were like, oh no, it's the queen. The most famous woman in the world. She's on the money. She's in our pockets. Uh, and oh, it was just petrifying. And you know, there's people with like swords and army outfits and stuff. And so, oh, so, so just before this happens, they say she wants to see us in our working environment. She wants to see us as you would every other day. Although this day, everything's been checked for bombs and you're not allowed course, to leave yeah. the building from 7 a.m. It's going to be a little different. <laughs> so myself and Phil Fletcher, who were Hacker and Dodge, were under the desk with the two presenters either side. And we were like, look, if we're going to meet the Queen, I'm not wearing my jeans and a t-shirt. I'm wearing a suit. So we snuck into the bathroom and we put our Blues Brothers suits on <laughs> and my little pork pie hat and we snuck back under there. So then when they said to the Queen, we'd like you to meet Phil and Warwick, the puppeteers, we came up with our lovely suits on <laughs> oh, that's for the photos. Cool. That's, that is classy. And somehow they beamed that into the news. Like this was supposed to just be kept within the studio, but it, then there's a massive screen outside the media city and they, they beamed that image out there and then it ended up on the 10 o'clock news. So that was kind of the only time we ever got recognized. About a week after that, people were saying, all right, you guys are the dogs who met the queen <laughs> because we came up with the dogs on our arms oh, and you'd so never cool. really see us. Yeah. We struggled up. We were lying flat down <laughs> on these like lay down dollies. Yeah. When you meet the queen, uh -huh. what, are, what are you supposed to do? Did they give you, you know, you're going to meet the queen. Here is what you say. You don't say anything until she speaks to you. So she addresses you first and then you say, oh God, what do you say? I you say, remember. oh God, that seems a little weird. <laughs> oh God, it's the queen. <laughs> <laughs> um, you say, you call her ma'am? Oh, I can't remember now, ma'am, I'm sorry. But, um, this is a disappointment. To, I really need to know. You have to say. <laughs> and so what's interesting is she walks from, they put stickers on the floor and she walks from sticker to sticker. She won't veer well, off that track. Why is that? Is that just like, this is a photo op? That's a photo because op? It's a timed engagement. <laughs> okay. She'll, she'll come from here, she'll stand on this sticker and she can look 360 and then she walks to that sticker and she can see free. And that's how she works. And if she changes, if she takes her handbag from one hand to the next, it means she wants to move on. And there are all these mm. secret little things that she does, like scratching her nose <laughs> means I need a wee. <laughs> um, there, so that was interesting to find out about those. I wish I could yeah. remember all the details now. And like they painted the, the building was only six months old, but they painted every corridor that she came down, repainted every corridor that she came down. I bet they did. And they put velvet curtains in the elevator and stuff. And so we have to, you can't speak to her until she speaks to you. you I think you have to first call her your majesty. And then you can call her ma'am after that. And we just decided that we wanted to have some fun. So we, we came up between Phil and I, we came up, we're going to say, if the corgis fall sick, you know where to find us. Um, <laughs> and we've got our little tie and bow ties on. So we've, we've pressed it for you. And, and then Hacker says, oh, and I've also got my little handbag. He has a dainty little handbag. And I say, and I've made some cucumber sandwiches for you. We had a plate of foamy sandwiches. That's and she so just funny. said, uh, she said something like, oh, how clever. 
And she immediately moved her handbag from one hand to the bag. He's like touching her yeah. nose, like, get me yeah, out of yeah, here. Yeah. And then when she left, it was great because all of the army people in their outfits and their swords and their hats and stuff were like, oh, yeah, ha, ha, very good. That was a great, wonderful show. That was the first. <laughs> That's nice. And you know, and it's probably true because how often does she get to meet uh, puppets? Yeah, I know. You know, I think like I think the Muppets. She met the Muppets at some point. Yeah, many many years ago. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So this brings us to a show called Furchester Hotel, which is kind mm-hmm. of a sister show, a cousin show, a spinoff of Sesame Street. Yep. And it was produced in uh, in Manchester, in Media City in Manchester. Yep. And you play Gonger. 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 <laughs> Gonger. Oh, that's uh, what you say. Yeah. What's G, funny about the hard G? Oh, I say Gonger. Yeah, Gonger. But then people say, what are you saying? What, Gonger? Gonger? Gonger. <laughs> What's a uh, Gonger? Well, yeah. like, and, and you know, from my notebooks and sketchbooks full of shows that I was going to make, the first chest is in one of those notebooks from 10 years ago. And uh, I'd seen a documentary, one of the Henson documentaries, and then a Sesame Street New Year's Eve special where they took you around the world to the local co-productions. And it blew my mind I, just, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that was happening all over the world. It's just and were you thinking, why isn't it happening here? Exactly, yeah. So I started to make my own in my books. You know, instead of Big Bird, we'd have a pigeon. <laughs> and our Grouch would live in a recycle bin and all this kind of stuff. I planned all this show out. And at some point in those books, I'd also planned The Muppet Show plus 40 Towers equals Fantastic, <laughs> which is the Furchester. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and... And so years before the Furchester, I was wandering around BBC Television Centre on the phone, walked into a meeting room. You have these big meeting rooms, just walked into an empty meeting room. I was on the phone and there was all these papers on the table, big printouts. And they were the pitch for the Furchester. Really? <laughs> like, that's fate, isn't it? I yeah, could have gone into any room. I could have walked outside. I just wandered in and I was like, wow. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be on this thing. This is the show I want to do, yeah. Um, it took years after that though. And I think like, Kevin or, or somebody told me that that show had been in people's minds from since the 90s, since the Furry Arms. So then eventually we did the Furchester. And but how did you I, get that job? So finally, after years of, after all those years of me seeing that pitch document <laughs> that I shouldn't have seen, yeah. um, the audition came up. I don't know how we heard about it, but the audition came up and we all went in with AMs, those yellow funny AMs yep. and never on the show, fat blue, yellow fat blue. They're kind of like the workshop puppets as well. Yeah. And I really love that yellow, fat, blue one. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> and uh, we just auditioned. Everybody auditioned. And, you know, they, cho- they chose us. They chose the, the, the gang that did it. What really sticks in my, out of my mind is that when we got to the rehearsals, all the puppets, the main cast, and the Tea Time Monsters, and Harvey were all laying on the, out on the tables with some mayhems. And I ran along the tables looking at the main cast. Oh, nice, nice, nice. Lovely, lovely, lovely. And then I saw Gonger in the bag. He was at the end tiny, half the size of everybody else, scrawny, looks like he's just been thrown together, not much thought's been put into it. And to me, I was like, oh, that's funny. He looks like he's come, he looks like he just walked out of the 60s from the television show. We can do something with that. I can do something with that. We can do something with that. That's funny. Uh, Mac, who was the puppet captain, Mac Wilson, was like, oh, that one's mine. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, okay, well, all right, fine. Didn't really think anything of it other than like, oh, I liked him. I still looked at him all the time, picked him up all the time, but he wasn't my character. And then he only actually, in that first batch that we did, which was a lot of episodes, he just, all he did was gong the gong. He hit the gong. 
didn't even speak. He just gong and then we fall over. Mac did that because there was nothing to it. Like David did a bit of it. Ryan did it. People just it did it because didn't have a performer. It was it just was a nothing you know, character. It was just yeah. a visual of him hitting the gong, and hopefully there's a funny reaction to him hitting the gong. He vibrates. He falls over. Often they would just loop the same, uh, repeat the same yeah. two second VT. So then Mac didn't come back for the second batch, and I was like, "Ooh, <laughs> maybe I can take him on." Mm-hmm. So I went over and spoke to them and said, "Look, I really love to do it. I'll give it my all." Um, and that was it. I just kind of pitched. And, and didn't hear anything of it. Then when we were in rehearsals for the second batch of shows, they just plonked him on my lap. And I said, oh, I'm, I don't really know if this is actually for me. Uh, nobody's told me this. <laughs> they were like, yeah, it's yours now. But did he have a name at that time? I think he always had that name, Gonga. Because he hit the gong. But nobody ever said it. How did he become what he ultimately was on that show? Did they start writing for him or did you start playing with him and then they were like, oh, that's something yeah. like Need to write. I started to play with him. They they made the decision to let him be the chef to free up Cookie because Cookie was the chef in the first batch of episodes. And they're break, broken up into seasons and I don't know how they break them up. But there's like half the episodes Cookie's a chef for the second batch. They didn't want to keep him in the kitchen so they put me in the kitchen with Gonga. And then he was just background interest and he gonged the gong. So I started to come up with funny ways of him to go like i made a list of this episode's about chicken so we'll have a chicken in there i know like he'll sneeze on a feather i just made a whole list of bits that we would do to keep that entertaining and not be just to repeat i kind of hate it when bits are repeated yeah uh, because we've seen it you've seen it once you don't need to see it again so i came up with a lot annoyed many people with long lists of this is what we'll do next and then he'll do this and then i'll say this and you'll do (laughs) um and like I came up with one for every episode that we did. Hardly any of them made it in, but it was good training ground for me because I was getting confident with him. And then they, so at some point they were like, he needs a voice. And I hadn't really thought about what voice I would do. I mean, really the first time I saw him, I thought, oh, I'll just do a gruff Jim Henson type of voice. Mm-hmm. But this time when it was, when like it's showbiz time, it's real. <laughs> We're going to do this and it's going to stick. <laughs> so I just was like, oh, well, you can't go high because Elmo and Phoebe are high. Cookie's got the gruff low like where do you, everybody around me had already established their characters. So I went with the squeezy helium-y voice, which I don't really like. Like I like his voice, but if I hear someone else do it, I'm always like, meh, don't really like those, those sounds. Yeah, yeah. But it was kind of all I had to work with. And I was just having fun with it, with him. He was often in the background. And if he wasn't, I'd go and grab him and put him in the background and just have him do something different. Like as if he has his own life going on over there. <laughs> yeah. And that would entertain me. And then it started to make other people laugh, um, which gave me more confidence. Of course. And then whenever there were these little bits between Cookie and Gonga, they were, and David was around, they'd be, everybody would be laughing. And we just knew we were onto something. Mm-hmm. You know, like when the camera crew are laughing and the people are coming down just to see that bit, then you're like, oh, okay, this is something we should keep doing. And, and so from that, they started to write episodes for him. And I mean, so he didn't speak very much. He spoke what they called monsterese. Yeah. Which, which is the two-headed monster language. Yeah. So every once in a while, a real word might pop out. Initially, no. It was just monsterese. It was just gibber- gibberish. Yeah. And, and from my experience from Outcha, I wove it in that the other characters would find clever ways of them translating him. That's not just a direct translation. You know, answering the question or reiterating what you said. I don't know. Um, and then I'd kind of squeeze little words in so like one of the first words was mama to Fenella 
Well, I'll do it, mama. Um, and uh, bit by bit, I'd get these scripts and I'd be like, well, I can't get this information across unless I put some English, sprinkle it with English words because it gets boring just to have everybody else repeating him. Right. Um, so bit by bit. And like what I like now is if you watch those episodes in the order, it looks like he's just slowly learning to speak English, that, which is nice. I really like it. I think when you came to do the Christmas show, he didn't speak English. And by the end of it, he was speaking very broken English. The very last episode we shot was an episode called Gonga Goes, which was like his finest hour on the Furchester show because it was all about him being frustrated that the guys don't thank him enough. Uh, like he cooks all the food, he does all this stuff, but nobody... Nobody thank you me! <laughs> nobody thank you me! Why nobody thank you me here? So uh, and it was like a big emotional, I'm leaving! I'm leaving! <laughs> uh, and that was the very last thing we shot. Somewhere in there, I thought this is ending this is this is like coming towards me very fast this will all end and this yeah. is where i kind of want to stay <laughs> i don't want to leave um yeah. so i started knocking around the idea of the food truck with carolyn and ryan and david and saying wouldn't it be funny if they were like delivering food if they had a side hustle where they delivered food from the hotel and were you thinking this would be something in the uk were you thinking yeah. i'd love to get this in yeah the US. No, 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 not at all. I imagine that it would be a, when, when we stopped making the fur chest, that it would be a cheaper option of, because uh, it would just be design. gonger and maybe cookie. Gong, gonger and cookie. And then we had like a delivery bird, a little bird that did the deliveries and the van would, the truck would speak, have like a sat nav voice. So you kind of came up with the concept of this show along yeah. with, with Carolyn uh, Prenti. And, yeah. And like, and everybody had input. Ryan had input and David and Neil and Andy and Louise and everybody who was around was, was kind of like just um, laughing along and adding bits and bobs, you know, as as happens. And uh, yeah, I remember going to lunch one day when I was over there, Purchaser, <laughs> and there was a food truck. Do you remember? We would go across. I do remember there was a food fair. Yeah, yeah. And there was a f- tiny miniature food truck there, and you stopped there. And chatted with the man who owned it, I guess, or who ran it. Or Sorry, do you remember I mean, that? Mm-hmm. Yep. So you were actively trying to create this show at yeah. that. And what did you do? Did you shoot something after so what that? I did or? was one of those food trucks were outside the building, and I'd walk past it every morning. It was a curry curry uh, takeaway, so you'd make curries at lunchtime. And I always always walk past the food truck, and then I was like, "Well, I'm going to ask that guy if he'll let me have his food truck for a bit." <laughs> um. So I just went over to the guy and said, look, I'll give you 50 pounds if you leave me alone in your truck for an hour. <laughs> you can stay or you can go. We're just <laughs> going to film something in here and, and that's that. And we'd written a script by this point. Um, I think anyway. Uh, so he did. So I gave him 50 pounds. Great investment. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, and we put iPhones on the shelf, on a stand, wherever. iPhones next to us for audio. And we shot a pilot. And I edited all the bits together and, and we had like a, a bird in it. So we green, did a little green screen bird flying away with the food that they'd made cool. and then pitched it to, to Sesame. This was still to pitch to CBeebies, actually. Yeah. I'd never in, in my wildest dreams thought that I'd pitch it to Sesame. It just didn't cross my mind. So I pitched it to CBeebies and they were like, oh, we have another food show in development. Um, you like with Cookie Monster and Gonger? And- <laughs> I didn't question it. I just was like, oh, okay. <laughs> right. And then I think Carolyn was like, well, we should send it to Sesame. 
And I was like, really? (laughs) No. Me? No. (laughs) And like we did and, and we pitched it. And then weeks later, I seemed to be in the studio and we were shooting it. It was such a quick turnaround. I don't know if you remember how quick it was. It was very quick. It was so quick. And then you directed the first batch. Mm -hmm. And what was funny is in those initial scripts, I wrote some of those early scripts, I think the first one um, with Carolyn and Gonga still spoke really broken English. And I didn't know that he was going to be completely English or as English as he is now until I was there, which I loved. It was great. And it adds to that journey of him slowly learning the language. And that's, and that's part of the backstory I have in my mind anyway, is that like he doesn't, he's not really eloquent and he doesn't really speak the language very well. So you can't know his stuff. He knows his stuff and he likes order. So that's why he gets annoyed so quickly because he likes order. And and that's why he likes being a chef because you know, you need so much of this and so much of that and measure of that, which is just like me. I like things to be in their place. Otherwise I kind of lose it. (laughs) And, and so he gets aggravated even, even quicker because like the language barrier and the, the, you don't really understand me. I don't really understand you. That all adds to his fieriness, I think. Yeah, it's the, it adds to the chaos. And then you put Cookie Monster in there and it really just gets, it does get chaotic. Kind of the worst person you could put in there to work with. Right, right. Well, tell me about David Rudman and working with David and that relationship. Because One you, of the best people he is, to have in there. Uh, you got to work with him a lot on, on Furchester. Yeah, I got to know him properly on Furchester. And, and I always like to, you know, do something. When I see him a smirk, or a little smile in the side of his mouth, I was like, okay, yes. Yeah, great, great. I'm doing something that he approves of. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, because like, you don't, you want that, you don't want the side eye, which I've had. No, you don't want that. And then I'm like, oh no, I'm not, I must be doing something awful. I must have like, what have I done? Have I burnt his house down? Like, or at least make you aware that he's aware of you, whatever it is you're doing. <laughs> yeah. And, and like he, he would give me, before Gonger in the first block of shows when I was doing the guest characters. I still did the guest characters in the second block, but mostly in the first block of shooting, I was like a hotel guest, a cow, a mouse, a blah, blah, blah. And, and he gave me really good advice one day. We would, I was doing this cow who was a sculptor and the sculpture had been broken. So I was next to him doing, oh no, my sculpture has been broken. He was like, you don't need to up it. Like you need to up it a hundred percent. Like, oh, oh no oh god oh god okay fine. i'll try i'll try so i think i up it 100 percent, and he's like no, no no you need to up it another 100 <laughs> percent. and uh, and i was like oh I, can i do this i don't know if i can do this and so i had him and louise gold either side of me and they were kind of just training me as we were shooting yeah. and then he said something really interesting to me which has always stuck with me is that this is the most important day in this cow's life so you got you got to make it pay and and memorable <laughs> it's helped me ever since it never crossed my mind and i wish he had told everybody that because it's really good advice. It really is. You, you, you mentioned Louise. Yep. So Louise was there for the whole Furchester issues. And I first got to work with Louise when we did one of our Ed and Outcho shows because I was so eager to work with her. I think she was like, she'd retired from puppetry. She hadn't been doing it for a long time. And then as soon as we needed a female, I was like, you got to get Louise. Get, get on the phone, get her agent, get her in. So she came back to do my Ed and Outcho show. We did these termites, husband and wife termites. And then, and ever since then, we've been like crisscrossing. We did the, the I don't, we did everything. Whatever, whatever's happened, we seem to have been there. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I love working with Louise because she's my hero. She is the British Muppet performer. She is. And she's so talented. Yeah. She's great. I love Louise. I love getting to spend time with her. And, you know, I don't, I don't really know her that well, but every time I see her and we interact, it feels like in that moment, yep. 
we've been you've known her forever yeah chums forever yeah because you're because you, you've got that link now which we all have that link that lineage and yeah i don't know like you know the family link i think that's right yeah so you got to do sesame street I know, you dragged me over because people have always said to me like what do you aspire to do then what's the what's the you know what's the plan where do you want to be what do you want to do what, what's the big thing and i was always like well I want to do Sesame Street. That's never going to happen. It's not even worth thinking about because it doesn't happen for British puppeteers. Louise was the first British performer to come over in the 90s. I think the first and only. Yeah, and I think you're the second. I'm the second and I'm the only one to have a character. Yeah. Because she would do lots of those big musical numbers and stuff. But I don't think she had a, uh, a character that would recur. I hope I'm not wrong. <laughs> not wrong too. If I'm wrong, I'll leave it in the comments. <laughs> That's true. Okay, yeah, please do. <laughs> first thing you did was Furchester. Yeah, so I sighed where you stepped in. Yeah. <laughs> With a character. It was a segment that you created. It was You're, all in my mind. I was so confident with it. I was so, what I'm trying to say is, I'm not trying to big myself up, I was so, comfort, I was so comfortable within it, is what I'm saying. Because yeah. I knew it inside out. I'd written it with Carolyn, I'd storyboarded it, you know, I'd pitched it, we had shot the pilot, which was pretty similar to what we do now. Um, yeah, so... Really, had I come to Sesame and not had that that experience, I would have just probably fallen apart. But I was already really comfortable in what what I was doing. I knew that I liked Gonger. I knew I knew about him. I knew his backstory. I knew that he and Cookie were friends. If Cookie much is your friend, you don't need to worry about anybody else. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I just sidestepped in, which is weird. Yeah, it is. And, and But being a fan of Sesame Street for mm-hmm. since you were little and since yeah. you could see the show, did you have any moments when you did come to Sesame Street that you were just like beside yourself and like, I can't believe that's... Yeah. I couldn't believe that. I, can't be- I still can't believe that when we shoot foodies, we shoot it opposite the stoop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Mind blown. Opposite of the steps of one, two, three, because we, we shoot in a very pretty small studio, really. Yeah. And so the, gong, the, uh, the foodie truck set, which is a standing set, is Reset. directly opposite of the one, two, three steps. I've been lucky because lots of the stuff that I've done has been raised sets. <laughs> so my back's still safe. My back's still good. Um, but actually, I first visited Sesame back in like 2009 because I'd worked with Kevin on the Elmo promotional appearances in London for a few years. So uh, one of my friends, like back in, I don't know, 2008 or nine, one of my friends had said, oh, I'm directing the morning show tomorrow and Elmo's the guest. So I was like, I'm there. I'm there. just there. I'm taking the morning off. I'm there. And I came and watched Kevin promote something, Elmo's World, I suppose, and uh, and said, uh, excuse me, will you sign my book? He <laughs> said, sure, Mr. Yeah, yeah, okay. And then he called me up the next I was like, oh, just let me know if you need anything. Here's my number. Called me up the next morning at 5.30 a.m. What, what I, I squealed. I was like, <laughs> I can't believe I'm, I'm going to get to work with a Muppet for the first time, the real yeah. Muppet. Uh, and... And not any old Muppet, Elmo. Um, so, and then I was like, well, why is he calling me at half five in the morning if he needs me at half six this evening? <laughs> and he meant in an hour. <laughs> oh, he, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and did you figure that out quickly or did you miss the gig? Yeah, no, no, I was there. I would not yeah, miss yeah. that for the world. Yeah. And then I just, I ended up doing that with him all the time. So that was my kind of link. That was my first 
step in with the Muppets. And then you visited in 2009, but then a few years later, really, yeah. now you're, you're working on Sesame Street. So let me ask you a couple of Sesame Street kind of fan-type questions. What, mm-hmm. what Sesame Street or Muppet character do you best identify with? Oh, hmm. Early Grover, maybe. So I'm guessing it's in those uh, inserts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe with Kermit or somebody. Oh, Herbert Birdsville, somewhere like that, yeah. 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 And uh do you have any favorite episodes or sketches that you remember from when you were younger? Not really. I mean, I'd watch Sesame was on really early in the morning. So my mum would wake up and tape it for me. Because it was on at like six. Mm-hmm. So she'd tape it for me so I could watch it later on. Um I, I don't I just enjoyed it. I watched Follow That Bird a gazillion times. <laughs> Um, yeah. But I don't really remember any standout episodes. I always love Biff and Sally. I love Biff. I love Jerry's characters. Yeah. I mean, just amazing. It's, it, that vocal performance. It's like, it, I was going to say it could send me to sleep, but I don't mean it bores me. Yeah. I mean, like, it just, it's like, um, it's like um, a mantra, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. It just goes in, like it goes in and it relaxes you. <laughs> it's yeah. like booze. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Jerry Nelson and his vocal quality, it's time to hear a song from the man himself, Mr. Jerry Nelson. I love this happy little song that is, in fact, called Happy Little Song. When you're troubled and weary, worries getting you down, drop them all to come along, sing this happy little song, just forget about woe. Life's too short when you stumble To just lie there and moan Jump right up and move along Sing this happy little song You'll feel better, I know Lay down your burden and just kick back Hey, your mind's a tough nut to crack You can do it if you try Come on along and fly high Make a date with the sunshine Wrap yourself in a smile Keep the positive beat To the tapping of your feet And let the world know That you're fresh out of gloomy All your smiles are for free Pull yourself out of the dump Sing a song that moves and jumps Just set yourself free It's always darkest before the dawn Put on a big grin and carry on Let the silver liner come shining through Shine its light on you Make a date with the sunshine Hurt yourself in a smile Keep the positive beat to the tapping of your feet And let the world know Let them all know that you're fresh out of gloomy No more gloomy, man All your smiles are for free (laughs) Pull yourself out of the dump Sing a song that moves and jump Just set yourself free Set yourself free Yourself free Yourself free Thanks, Jerry. We are back once again with Warwick Brownlow Pike. Could you imagine in your wildest dreams that you would be playing your character, a character that you really created, uh, not only on Sesame Street, but on Sesame Street's 50th anniversary celebration? No. No, 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 no. And those those anniversary celebrations, the retrospectives, are my favorites. 
I know. Like I always watch them. I love them. Yeah, they're the best because they get you know you get the big groups of characters, best of everything, and everybody's there, and the celebrities yeah. come, and the songs are great. I mean, look, that was my over the rainbow moment when we were all set, stood there singing, sing with Whoopi and Patty and all the human cast and, and Linda was there mm-hmm. and Susan and Bob and everybody was there and we yeah. were all down there on the floor together. Right. Carol right. was there and Fran came. Yeah. And I was in the front row down there. So I kept looking back and it was so overwhelming. And and I, David like squeezed my shoulder a couple of times because he saw the tears coming down my face. It, it blows my mind that that happened. And whenever I see a picture of it, I just I have hearts in my eyes. Hmm. It's like the best moment of my life. It's pretty cool to get to live out a dream that you never even knew you really could have. Yeah, yeah. I didn't. I thought that was completely unobtainable. Yeah, it's just it's so far from where I come from, and you know, like that just goes to show dreams can come true to me because uh, you would never think that would happen to someone. I know. I know. Like me from where I come from. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's true. You know, looking back on your on your whole life, but you were so driven, even as a young child, that this is yeah. what you wanted to do. Mm. You have made it happen. It never faltered. Yeah, I yeah. always was going to do it. And like, if you if people ask me today, what would you like to be? I'd say I'd like to be a puppeteer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and on that special, you also helped me with Kermit. Yeah, when we did being green on the on the steps. With Elvis yeah. Costello. Yes. We were snug under those steps. We were. That was great. So much fun. I, yeah. You were so kind to me and letting me do everything. Because like normally when you come, you do right hands for a couple of years. I'd imagine you'd come in, you do right hands for a couple of years, you might get some background. And for me, it's worked backwards. Whereas I came and did the character. And then like, I'm so excited. Like you let me do Kermit's feet under the stoops like i'm so excited to do it or ernie or right hand ernie yeah, yeah, yeah. For the song or like do the, uh, just go and do a monster over there outside hooper's eating a sandwich yeah oh my god yes or can you do the pigeon that's holding the banner oh yes <laughs> it's like so it's like a backwards thing for me whereas yeah you know, the job the jobs are uh, not as in the forefront i suppose but like the excitement just builds and builds <laughs> just being a part of it it's just some of it about you is just you're so you have such enthusiasm and just like this constant joy. I just uh, remember me and you sat on the floor cross legged watching Patty LaBelle stood on the stoop singing. I know. Just, I'm like, what? They, wait, this is my life. Now. I know. This- you are right now in this moment. It's unbelievable. Speaking of, uh, we talked about Kermit there, but we did, you did some chat show appearances with Muppets, but you also helped me with uh, it was mm-hmm. the Sainsbury. Christmas oh, yeah. commercial, you know, every year. <laughs> well, yeah, the the, Chris, the the big stores will have Christmas commercials and they vie to be the best commercial. Yeah. And so we did one a couple of years ago where Kermit makes yeah. a, a little appearance and you helped me out yeah. with that. We had a, a nice time yeah. there for just a short short time in, in London. Uh, but you also did, going back a few years, Muppets Most Wanted, which is, I think, where we must have met. Yes, that's where we met. I'd met Eric before. Because I had done the Muppets on the X Factor, Miss Piggy on the X Factor with him. I assisted him for that. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of, I think that may be part of the reason that I was on Muppets Most Wanted as one of those four um, continuous British puppeteers. Because, you know, we had lots of people come and go, but there was me, Louise, Nigel, and Mac. Right. I think possibly that's because Kevin and Eric had suggested me. Or said, like, I'm there, he's there, <laughs> he works with us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on that movie, most of the time, what'd you do? 
Well, I did a lot of doubling for Eric. Uh, if you guys couldn't do the doubling for Fozzie or, or Animal or somebody, I seem to always like end up doing that stuff, which was lovely because I feel like I know those guys too. Was there any highlight that you can remember? Um, yeah. When we did the scene where, I think it's where this, the Muppets first meet Dominic and we're all lined up at the table there. We're in the, this little old restaurant, like Art Deco restaurant. It's a great restaurant. Well, I can't remember what it's called now, but it's in South London. It's great. And the main gang were in the booth with Ricky opposite and all the other Muppets were kind of crowded over the back of the booth. And I was, so I was doubling for Eric there as Fozzie and I did a bit of water as well. And we were all down there and I was like, this is just insane. Um, funnily enough, and I don't know whether you want to keep this in or not, <laughs> but I was given Piggy to do down there yeah. to double, yeah. double four. I don't know how much we're allowed to speak about this stuff. Um, so I was given Piggy to double and I was given the rehearsal puppet. So we're all sat down like cross-legged under the table because the table wasn't raised. It was, Ricky had to be on the opposite side and it was in a real restaurant. So we're all down there, monitors, blah, blah, blah. And I put Piggy up and the rehearsal Piggy, she has a white dress with purple spots on it at that point. And it was a long silky dress. And so it was in Dave's face, Gold's face. And he's like, oh, can you deal with that? So I said, yeah. Obviously, incredibly nervous because I feel like I shouldn't be in this row of people. But anyway, I got you. I got it's like Bill, Steve, me, Dave, yeah. uh, Eric's either side of me, and everybody's there. You're there. Rudman's there. Peter's there. I already feel way out of my depth. And then Dave goes, says to me, "Can you get the skirt out of my face? You know, hoik it up or something." So I grab the skirt around my fist, hold in the rods, and lift everything up, which means that Piggy's hands now fly right up in front of her eyes. <laughs> I'm, I mean, I know that's not what you do, but I'm just, I'm just lifting things out of the way. And then within like a millisecond, the puppet was taken off my arm and I was given fuzzy, <laughs> which is hilarious. To be fair, she's really tough. Yeah. I didn't get the chance to prove whether I'm good or bad. <laughs> you, did that. You, were over, you were worried about your fellow performer. Yes. I know. I don't want to blind him. Not with a silken dress. I'm going to change courses okay. and I'm going to, you were one of the core performers on Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. Yeah. And you, you were also the second assistant puppet captain. How many puppet captains worked on that so show? So we had Kevin Clash was the puppet captain. Then we had Dave Chapman was the first assist and I was the second assist. <laughs> it's a huge undertaking. It's, it's, it's a beast. Huge. You could have done with five of us, really. I'm sure they, they, were, they didn't want to get three of us in, but you could have done with five because it's a lot of people. You could have really had someone dedicated to just rehearsing people to, have, to make sure the puppeteers are ready for the scenes that are coming up. You could have had someone who is specifically just over the puppets to make sure they're all ready and fixed and right. And, and when they go on, they just they, they work. They hit the ground running. Um, so we'd, and then like somebody just seeing who we're going to get in the next couple of days and what they're going to be doing. And, this, and so the good thing is that me and Dave knew the skill set of lots of the British puppeteers. Oh, so we good. could say, yeah, we could say, oh, this person's great at doing Bunraku stuff. Uh, oh, we need shadow puppets. We know exactly who to get for that. We managed to get a marionette in of a poddling dancing, like in the old movie. Like we just, we knew just the person to do that. So that was quite good that we Very already cool. knew everybody. And then you also got to do a lot of puppeteering, a lot of performing yeah. on the show. You played the Chamberlain. Uh-huh. <laughs> Big yep. character. Big boots, yeah. Literally and figuratively. Yes. You did some other other characters, but let's talk about. I want to talk about the physical workload 
especially the Skeksis. Yeah, it's the most exhausting thing I've ever done. And I think any of us had ever done. Um, it was a hot, hot summer. We, we shot for like nine months or something. Um, in like long days, not very long days, um, eight till six or something, but boy, did it feel like a long day. Um, when you're in a Skeksis, you have a, a big weight on, you're wearing a backpack basically, and the body of the Skeksis is attached to that backpack on a frame. So it's like a, a camping backpack. So the body is suspended up in the air and it's all the weights on your hips mostly and over your shoulders and around your waist. Your right hand goes up through a hole in the suit, the neck hole, and then they put the head onto your hand. The head's heavy because it has all those animatronics in the top of it. It's got like servos and blinks and snarls. And so Don Austin, a puppeteer called Don Austin would do the RC for the face for me. I'd still run the lip sync and I was still doing the performance, the acting, uh, the voice, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then Kat Smee would be under my left arm and she would be doing the Chamberlains. No, she'd be under my right arm. She was under there somewhere. She'd get lost yeah. in all the costume. Yeah. You don't have to worry about her because she's so good, yeah. which is great. She knows what she, you know, we're just in sync. She just knows what I'm going to do, where I'm going to go. And we'll have a quick discussion or a nod or a wink. And then we know what we're going to do. And Don can follow along with us because he can hear us on the headsets. We've all got headsets on. So there's three performers per skexy. Sometimes we'd have like, I think there's nine or nine Skeksis. There'd be nine Skeksis. There'd be like a whole bunch of Gelfling. There was a lot of puppeteers on that set. I didn't yeah. know there were that many puppeteers in the UK. I know. Cause I think they say we had like 86 or something. I think I counted um, 72, I think, on one day. On that one was, day? On one day. That was the day. So Dave had to go back to Star Wars. The battle was coming up, which was the big deal the big scene where every, everybody's going to be in all the puppets are going to be in use and cameras flying around everywhere and explosions going off you know people in skexes and people not in skexes and people with gelfling um so that kept coming up and kept getting pushed as things do in the business the schedule keeps sliding so they get pushed back and back and back that happened to be pushed dave had to go back to star wars on the friday that got pushed all the way back till the following monday so I drawn up this humongous watertight plan of where everybody's going to be. And like, this is version A. Until this happens, then we, everybody goes to version B. Until this happens, then we go to C. And everybody's like moving. And this, the set is like Swiss cheese. Um, and it was like, I'd gone to bed that night going, you've done a good job. Great. Like I got people to check it over. Yes, this looks watertight. This looks great. This is all going to be fine. And then we come in the next morning and things start to change. And people start to say, well, no, maybe that should be here and that should be there and he should do that. And, and I'm like, no, my plans. <laughs> I was like, somebody run and get my papers. <laughs> and it all just, worked out. The end. It worked out, but it felt like it was falling through my fingers. Oh my gosh. Did you yeah. perform the voice for any characters on the show? Yeah, actually, I, not many of us did do the voices for our characters. Right, they're, they're, we, they're, we did it all on the day. You did on the day, but then yeah. later, some, another actor... Celebrities would, would celebrity do it. voice would yeah. voice the characters. Some celebrities such as Simon Pegg did the Chamberlain. Um Taryn Egerton did Rianne. Um oh God, we had so many Mark Hamill did the scientist. We had yeah. lots of great people in. What's interesting right. is when we watched it back, the core puppeteers, sometimes we'd be like, huh, now is that me or is that him? Because <laughs> it was so close. Yeah. That's pretty They're good. really locked in. They can't go anywhere. Yeah, they, you know we we've put the lip sync down. We put the performance down. So if they start going in a different direction, it just won't. It yeah. won't match. It won't jive yeah. with it. Um, but I got to do 
we did all the voices on the day and I got to do a gelfling, which is just an incidental character, had a couple of scenes. Uh, I wanted to do a gelfling, but I was actually petrified of doing a gelfling because we were exposed. Like we were just out there. You're in, in a Skeksis, you're hidden. Yeah. And I was just petrified really of, of being exposed. I don't know why, because that's what I've done my entire career. Right. All of a sudden, I think all the pressure of the entire show just made me feel like just hide away, <laughs> hide in the office, hide in the Skeksis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then all of a sudden I was exposed with it with gelfling. So I did one that had a few lines and Louis would say, oh, why don't you do something with a voice? Like, give it something, an accent or something. And I was like, well, someone's going to dub it. I'm going to just keep it basic and then they can do what they need to do. I'm not going to tie them up with it. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the Chamberlain, I was doing what I believed should be done from Frank and, and the right. previous voice actor. Um, and then like, I got to, they kept my voice on the Gelfling. <laughs> so it's just this. Yeah. It's, I pronounced my letters a bit better. Like, it's just me. And I did a podling too. So I got to do one of each. I got to voice a podling and, uh, and a Gelfling. And I got to do the Chamberlain. And I did was, loads of other bits and bobs, but those were the characters I did. Overall, what was your takeaway from that experience shooting Dark Crystal? It was so hard. So, so hard. And then it wasn't until we had watched it and I was like, that's really, that was worth it. All the pain, all the sweat, all the tears, all the blood. All the charts that had been <laughs> yeah, All the ignored. papers that were in the air. <laughs> it was worth it, yeah. When it finally did come out on Netflix, what was the response you, you got? Um, I got such great positive feedback from it. it. I think, you know, the fans of The Dark Crystal, of which I'm one, no, like I'm not as extreme a fan as I was with The Muppets and stuff, but I definitely loved it, loved watching it for the art of, art of the movie. <laughs> other world this magnificent mm-hmm. place never seen yeah and every time it would get re-released on like a dvd or a blu-ray i'd buy it because i just knew we could see more as, as the picture quality got better you just discover more and more um they loved that how dense it was <laughs> it's brilliant and what i love about it is that it it sees that original world yeah. through a more modern lens and i think it's just yeah. really that it, it's the camera work yep. it's the the editing, the pacing of it so is pacing, a, yeah. more modern than how the original was, which kind of has these long still shots. It takes its time, yeah. Which, which is completely, you know, uh, valid and, and beautiful in itself. Yeah. And it, yeah. both of them, a great compliment to the original movie. Yeah, I agree. I think so. And I think that that's a, that's a first for like moving on from what we did on Mongrels and what you guys did on Muppets ABC series. It, it kind of like, it was that on drugs. <laughs> <laughs> it's like so like you say it's so pacey and dynamic like he i remember once he we had the puppets in the air we were stood there like three gelfling puppets up in the air and then he was on the floor with us with the camera pointing up from like their knee high so shooting a puppet from the knee up look circling them as they have this conversation and i thought that's just who thinks of that that's amazing <laughs> it's never been done before just thinking it in a, just a completely filmic yeah. way there's a dynamic dynamic dynamism dynamism <laughs> throughout the whole throughout the yeah whole he wasn't thinking in terms of these are puppets which is the he way was, to do it yeah he was thinking in terms of this is how i'm going to make this look interesting and, and great the sets are, are beautiful when i've i visited the set uh I we were doing the muppets take the o2 shows and i was just blown away by the detail of these beautiful sets they were so intricate and, mm. and is it true warwick that you would shoot out a set because you had all the episodes written ahead of time. And then these sets, they must have taken hundreds of hours for these artisans to create. Mm-hmm. But then you'd shooting on a set and then you'd throw it away. 
Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yep. But also, like, we'd shoot in the in the crystal chamber where the crystal hangs, and then we'd shoot it and shoot it and shoot it out, and then it'd go away, and then all of a sudden it would be back another day. <laughs> and like it's it's like a tower block, you know, you can't just knock it together. It's ridiculously exquisite and and a masterpiece. Yeah, but they and would throw them away after you shot them out because they were too too expensive to store, I guess. Store, and they were polystyrene, so they can uh. just chop them up. <laughs> and often, like we'd have sets that you wouldn't see, like beautiful, beautiful sets that just wouldn't be seen, but just in case you might see them. Never made it. Yeah, on. and I like telling people that um, like there's no body parts. In human body parts in the show but the podling band we painted up human fingers to match the podlings faces to play the the flutes or the guitars so the only human body parts in are the a couple of fingers <laughs> yeah all right work i'm gonna ask some rapid fire questions all right just answer what's on the top of your mind are you ready here we go yeah what's the hardest part about being a puppeteer the acting what's the easiest or the fear of the acting the fear of the acting? Yeah. Okay. The fear that I don't, maybe won't be able to succeed in the acting. What's the easiest part about being a puppeteer? Oh, the doing it. The, 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 like I just said, the freedom in the character. What do you think your biggest strength is as a puppeteer or performer? Um, being silly, being funny. Yeah. Uh, what's your biggest weakness then? The acting, I think. Uh, like... And, oh, I don't know if I'm bad at it, but the fear of not... Uh, it's fear. The fear is the thing that's there somewhere because it's like, will I learn these lines? Maybe you won't. Maybe you won't learn the lines this time. Maybe you can't remember them this time. <laughs> what are your favorite things about being a Muppet performer? Oh, just... Uh, I mean, there's so much pride in, in being able to say that I do this. This is something that I do. I still kind of don't believe it, really. I'm, I say it for a bit, but <laughs> I'm just pretending. <laughs> if you weren't a puppeteer, think about this. What would be your career? You cannot say I don't puppeteer. need to think about this because uh, I always like thought, well, I'd like to be a choreographer or a zookeeper. <laughs> that is so different. Uh, I don't think so. I think being a choreographer would, is pretty similar to puppetry because you're making shapes. I mean, a choreographer or a zookeeper. Oh yeah, that's different. <laughs> uh, but I can see how both of those, as in themselves, might be akin to being a puppeteer in some way. I can yeah, see well, it. I love I love watching animals because I mean, each each is its own character, has its own character. Give me the best piece of advice you've gotten during your career. Don't let the silk skirt get in my eyes. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, well, I think, like I said earlier, that that advice. Two pieces of advice, really. When I first visited the creature shop in London. Um, a guy called Dave, Dave Barrington Holt took me around on a tour and he said, um, never be afraid to ask. <laughs> like, what's the worst that can happen? They can just say no and you're, you're just as you were. You can, yeah. it can only be, if you ask and someone says yes, you'll only be better off. <laughs> and then David telling me like, this is the most important day of that character's life. Yeah. I've yeah. kind of lived by that ever since. Yeah. A Jerry Nelson once said to me, Sesame Street is great, but you always have to have something that is your own that you create. So Warwick, what is that for you? Well, I still kind of like to create my own ideas of puppet shows. And the foodie truck is exactly that. It was my own. And now it's everybody's. <laughs> so I suppose it's that. Um, I'm always writing something or coming up with something. 
I think it's, it's mostly show re- TV show related. I think I'm I'm always doing that. I think it's good. You know, you got to keep your mind active, and you got to mm. you have to keep creating. And this is yeah. that thing you've been doing ever since you were a wee one. Yeah. You know, this mm-hmm. is your thing. You now have the ability to maybe create a new thing, like you've done with yeah. Foodie Truck. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And I just love that. I love that you can pluck it from anywhere. You can just pluck something out of thin air and yeah. turn it into something. And whether it ends up on television or not, it's still possible to do that. That's right. You, and you're, you're always creating. Mm. Well, Warwick, thank you so much for talking to me today on Below. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this has been fun. And we figured out your microphone, so that's a plus for both of us. We can, on season two of this, we can re-record the first part (laughs) on mic. As a bonus feature. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, Matt. That's Below the Frame. If it's your kind of thing, please check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Leave a message. Tell us what you're thinking of the show. Our show today was produced by me. Our theme song was written by Stephanie DeBruzzo and performed by The Mighty Weaklings. Our podcast artwork was created by Dave Holteen at DaveHolteenDesign.com. Special thanks to Jan Nelson for giving me Jerry's stories and to Billy Evall, Jerry's friend, for sharing his memory and reading a Jerry story. Thanks to Warwick Brownlow Pike for being a part of this episode. And thanks to you too, the fans, for listening. I am Matt Vogel. We will see you next time when we go below the frame. Bye-bye. Go, 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 go.